1 Corinthians chapter 3 is where we turn again this morning. 1 Corinthians 3, our, our uh, Apostle Paul has been teaching us right thinking about the church in chapter 3, of course, but it follows chapter 1 and chapter 2, as you would probably figure out on your own. I don't mean to tease you, but just to say this is a long argument <clears throat> that Paul has been developing, and it has to do with how do we relate to another in the church, and why should it matter? Can't we just have another, I mean, can't we just have our disagreements and, and our squabbles and our maybe a little bit more divisiveness and maybe some some good Good old-fashioned, bad old-fashioned, if you don't mind, you know, fisticuffs, just taking this out and behind the woodshed and settling our problem. No, that's not at all appropriate to the church. That is not appropriate to how Christ has made this fellowship to be, both in a, in a local church sense, but also in the great church, that we should strive for unity. Now, not unity at any cost and not unity based on rather superficial kinds of things, but unity based on, if you don't mind, Christ crucified which really undercuts everybody's self-esteem and self-estimation. That, oh, I'm, I'm worthy of God's salvation. I know salvation is kind of a, a term that he uses toward me, but you know, I'm really good enough to get into heaven. Nobody's good enough to get into heaven. Well, maybe Jesus, right? Because he came from heaven and he didn't defile himself by any means. He was perfect from beginning to end, except for that time that he was on the cross. But that was for us a substitute. But nobody on earth, in other words, the gospel of a crucified Christ humbles everybody. It brings us right down to the bare bones and say, Lord, save me. But when we start getting kind of cocky and, and full of ourselves and, and full of our maybe our secret knowledge that we know more about this than other people, or, or we just get foolish, which is what we looked at back in chapter one, the wisdom of this world is foolishness. Well, it is foolishness to God. It's, it's wisdom to the world. And all these things we've looked at, the philosophy of, the, of this world, the, the whole agenda of self-advancement and self-importance, it is contrary. So when we come to the church, we need to jettison, uh, eliminate, get rid of all that kind of crazy, nasty uh, kind of attitude and thinking. We need to think rightly about the church. In chapter 3, we've looked at these different ideas. In, in chapters, chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, we looked at this concept that the servants that work in the church, they're just servants. There's nothing great about uh, the teachers, nothing great even about the Apostle Paul or Apollos. And they're just servants, and they will receive a reward from the Lord according to their to their work. And again, it's God working in them. But there's the idea, we don't need to put these servants on a pedestal and say, well, I'm of Paul's party, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. Don't do that. Don't do that. They're just servants through whom you believe. If you want to glorify anybody, it's Christ. Glorify him. And then, uh, was it last time we looked at care and test, testing in our building? He, Paul uses these different analogies in chapter 3 about uh, farming and, and uh, labors in the field and so forth. Then he changes the analogy to talk about building, where Christ or God's building, his, his habitation. And he says, be careful. Each, let each person be careful how he builds on the foundation of Christ, of course. But make sure that what you contribute to the building up of the church is going to last, the test. Uh, the test of fire, even, and, and talked about the metals, the gold, silver, precious stones that are being tested by fire. Well, those are going to make it through the fire, but the, the uh, trees, the, the wood, hay and stubble or the straw or the grass or whatever is going to be burned up. So be careful that you build with the right stuff. And we, we consider that the contribution that we make to the church, our labor for the master, uh, we want to, to last in that time of testing, whether temporally, but especially in that future day when Christ comes. And if you don't mind, read Revelation 2 and 3, 
where Christ is walking among the churches and has some good things to say and some rather rebuking kind of things to say to these different churches. And so we can learn from those things. Here in our text this morning, verses 16 and 17, Paul will continue that analogy, the the uh, image of a building. And he says, this isn't just any building. This isn't your local city hall. This isn't your uh, commercial retail center. This is the dwelling place, the sanctuary of God, which kind of changes the, the way that we approach this. This is a holy, holy habitation of a holy God. And so we want to protect that. We want to be very careful to make sure that we contribute what is holy and righteous and good also recognizing the one that works against, not just contributing things that are going to burn up, but contributing things that will tear down. It's a negative kind of a thing, a destructive kind of force. We'd, God says, no, those who destroy the church, I'm going to destroy them. We think, whoa, God, you're serious about this, aren't you? Yes, because it's, it's his body, it's his dwelling place. We'll look at all these different ideas in these verses. So verses 16 and 17, I have it on the screen, but you can, of course, look in your text and... Um, we will look at this together. Verse 16 says, Do you not know that you are a sanctuary of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the sanctuary of God, God will destroy him. But the sanctuary of God is, is what you are. Pretty simple text. How are you going to get a sermon out of that? Do you not know? Have you not heard these things? Are you unfamiliar with these things? And Paul uses this phrase a lot, 10 times, I think, total in First Corinthians. It's an idea of, and surely you know this. I mean, you're, you're, and it's almost reminds me of Job, you know, Job uh, chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, Surely you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. I mean, surely you know these things, right? I mean, you are the most learned people. Or back in John 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, you're the teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things? In other words, the Corinthians know the reality of who they are and what that means for God's purpose in this world. We are recon we are God's reconcilers or ambassadors. Christ is the great reconciler, but 2 Corinthians 5 talks about that, that he has entrusted to us the word or message of reconciliation. So he says, you know these things. It's a, a device that says, it's obvious to you. I'm frustrated, maybe a little bit of frustration, maybe a little bit of disbelief that this is, this is a problem for you. You don't understand who you are. Surely you know these things. How is it possible you don't know these things? It might even have a little sense of accusation or, or warning even. You better watch out. You know, you know better than this, right? And so these people who are so full of their own wisdom, their own knowledge, and, and uh, you know, we've got this figured out, Paul. You don't need to tell us anything. He says, well, you should know this at least. And they say, whoa, oh, yeah, I guess that is true, that we do need to recognize and act out that we are the sanctuary of God. Against their self-professed wisdom, Paul is challenging these whole things. And he says what? You are a sanctuary of God. Wow, a sanctuary of God. Maybe your scripture translation has a temple of God or maybe a dwelling place of God. This is the idea of uh, the place where God himself dwells. Now, you remember, as we've been considering Corinth, Corinth, as an ancient city, first century A.D. anyway, uh, Corinth was dedicated to a lot of things, commerce, of course, being in their strategic location. But one of the other things they had, which was typical of many Roman cities and, and areas, they had lots of shrines and temples. And shrines and temples are a similar idea. We'll look at what that might look like. But in terms of who they worshipped in Corinth, they had big time, like three different installations for the worship and service of Aphrodite. 
uh, or Venus in the in the Roman kind of a system. Afri these when you see a slash, the 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 first name is the Greek name and the Latin name or the Roman name. But they had three different temples or places to worship Aphrodite, who was the goddess of uh, sexual love and beauty. And in fact, the, the most famous temple was on the very top of the city, the height of the city, the Acrocorinth, they call it, the, uh, the upper Corinth, on the height of that that uh, plateau or mountain. It wasn't quite flat on the top, but, but they had this wonderful... In a pagan sense, I'm not saying this, I would like to go there, but in a pagan sense, beautiful kind of situation, beautiful overview of the isthmus of of, um, of Corinth right there. They also had a a worship place for Apollo, um, which is both his Greek name and his Latin name. Just so you know, a guy named Asclepius who was uh, known for medicine and health. In fact, a lot of what we see with the the um, the position and the pole and the snake and that goes back to Asclepius. We think it goes back to Moses maybe but definitely goes back to Asclepius and his daughter um, Hygeia Hygeia from which we get hygiene, you know that term? It's Greek. Anyway, these different things, Demeter and, and Ceres or Keres and Hermes or Mercury temples, sacrifice place, places of worship for these the Egyptian goddess Isis was worshipped here. And you think, what's going on with that? Because the the Latin or the Roman Empire just liked to amalgamate or, or conglomerate or just bring together whatever. You want to worship ISIS? You want to worship Yahweh and Jerusalem? You want to worship? Fine. Just pay your taxes and be peaceful. And we'll let you do, within reason, what you want to do. As long as you recognize, oh, the, all these gods are really under the emperor, right? Emperor worships big time in that first century time period. But if you want to worship Isis as an under god, fine, but you've got to acknowledge Caesar is god in addition to these other things. Poseidon and Neptune, which makes sense, right? Poseidon, Neptune, god of the sea, god of storms, uh, also horses. How does that all work together? I don't know. But Poseidon, Neptune, very much because of the, the commercial traffic going uh, back and forth and the, the traffic going south of, of Corinth, the very the the bottom of the of the isthmus of Achaia uh, very much worshipped him and then you know if they figured out if they excuse me if they missed anybody kind of like in Athens an altar to the unknown god they had a pantheon or a pantheum which is all the gods which is you know well like an All Saints Day or something but this is a, a place to worship all the gods and you just take your pick and and uh, just just do that well in our minds and we'll look at some pictures to see this idea of again whether your translation has temple or sanctuary, maybe it says shrine, maybe it says dwelling place. In Jerusalem, the first century world, of course, this is the second temple. Uh, and Anyway, this is, this is the temple that was intact in when Jesus was there in Jerusalem. And you think when we, we talk about the temple, the name temple, there are different words in Greek to reference this. The word temple can refer to the whole courtyard. You see the courtyard here around the, the, the central kind of facade. And even within that, gated or, or um, walled-in area, there's a various courtyards within that. Court of women, court of men, court of Israel, uh, and so forth, court of priests, and different things. When Paul uses this term, sanctuary, he's not talking about the whole grounds, all the, all the courtyards, which you could fit tens of thousands of people up there. It's called the Temple Mount. Even today, you can go up there and and uh, and see just lots of people can get there, but there's a place where not everybody's allowed to be. Gentiles can come up there, but not when you get inside that 
that uh, walled-in area, and especially as you get closer to the place of God's dwelling, the sanctuary of God, again, the, the, the place where God himself dwells. We're going to switch from this idea of a temple in Jerusalem, which was destroyed in AD 70, and go back a little bit farther because the temple isn't built or isn't there. We can't have pictures of it. There are different models. There's even a model coming at the Ark Encounter, hopefully very soon, that will display this. But very similar idea, very similar layout, very similar concept was the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And again, illustrating this idea, you are the dwelling of God, the sanctuary of God. This tabernacle built under the leadership of Moses and Aaron and, and the other, other folks was the place where God himself came down to dwell among his people, his chosen people. He says, where you are, that's where I want to be, and my, I'm going to make my dwelling place among men. So this is the place. Obviously, you approach from uh, through that, that uh, fenced-in area, have to approach through the altar, that altar of, of uh, uh, sacrifice where the uh, different offerings were, were presented, taking away sin, uh, celebrating the peace we have with God, the the um, washing or, or basin there you can see between the altar and the, the sanctuary, if you don't mind, and of course the different coverings. If you were to go inside, which us being Gentile, non-Jewish, non-Levitical even, not permitted at all, not you come maybe into that first area before the altar, but this is where the priests labor and, and do things. And even then, the, the uh, only select ones would go into that sanctuary place, that dwelling place of God. It's not this room yet. There are two rooms within that one building. And and within that room, you see different aspects of it. You see on the one side, a table with bread on it, the showbread. Uh, on, on the one side, on the opposite side, the menorah, the candlestick. And it wasn't wax candle. It was olive oil uh, and, and trimmed and, and uh, prepared every day. And then right in front of that curtain, the curtain, of course, uh, not this one, of course, but the, the curtain in the temple when Jesus died on the cross, that, te- that curtain was torn from top to bottom and uh, symbolizing the entrance of all people into God's own presence through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. But right in front of that curtain was an altar of incense where the prayers would be offered and God delighted in that incense, which is an amazing thing. God uh, celebrating bread and, and light and prayer, uh, the holiness that God requires for people to approach him. But if you were to slip uh, just a little bit inside that curtain or behind that curtain, you would see the place, the throne of God. I mean, that's where God himself dwells. That's where in, in Exodus 40 and then again in First Kings uh, 8, I guess would be, or 9, uh, in the course of, of Solomon's dedication of, the, of that temple, we see the glory of God come down and fill that place. I think, whoa, that's just amazing. If you were, I don't know if you want to, this is it's okay. If you peek inside that place, you'd see the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God, the place where the, 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 the glory, the Shekinah of God would come and be evident, and Moses would come in and talk with God in this place and celebrate that, that presence. When Paul, again, uses this term sanctuary, you are the sanctuary of God. It's not the whole building. It's not the, the stuff that, you know, the periphery of it, it's right there where God himself is. You are the dwelling place of God himself. And don't you know that? You are the sanctuary of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. In other words, remember when Jesus was talking to the woman woman at the well, John 4, they were talking about, the, where do you have to worship? Uh, you know, we worship on the Mount Gerizim, and, and you worship down in, in, in Jerusalem, and, you know, what's what's the big deal? And Jesus makes the point, 
Yeah, there's a there's a time coming when it, you know doesn't matter where you are. God desires those who worship in spirit and truth, and He says it doesn't matter. In fact, the 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 hour has come, is coming, and now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. John four and verse twenty three. God's dwelling place, as Paul says here, does not depend on the location. Like for example, if we met in the other room, would God still be over there? Is this the sanctuary? No, this is just where we happen to be. If we met in the next room, God would be there. It's a dwelling place. If God, if we met in a park somewhere, that's the dwelling place of God. We gather together, Christians gathering together, then we are God's dwelling place. It's not look, uh, attached to a position or a location or a geographic place on earth. It is with people. And by the way, maybe if you have a King James Version, one of the features of a King James Bible is a clear differentiation between singular you and plural you. We don't have that benefit in our most of our English translations now, or modern ones anyway. But in the King James, and, and in this passage, if you have it, uh, or if you have an old, well, I don't know if they didn't do it. Anyway, in the New American Standard 1977 edition, they changed some of the terminology, but they didn't do it in relation to the divine name. So when you read prayers, it would be thee and thou, God, and so forth, but not in relation to people. In other words, this is talking about everybody, not just individually. You're the, you're the temple of God, and you're the temple of God, and you're the temple of God. No, it's you all are together as a local church and as the church, uh, you know, universal. You all are the sanctuary of God. He's going to focus on an individual aspect. Individual Christians are the dwelling place of God. He's going to look at that in chapter 6 in relation to the the call for purity. But here he's emphasizing, y'all are unified in Christ. You are the ones who are the dwelling place of God. When you gather together for his purposes, and even, he says in Matthew 18, if you you ask anything in my name and two or three agree, then I'm with you. So there's that whole wonderful aspect of of God's presence, his direct um, attention, devotion to us. And he says, you recognize, you're not just a building, you're not one of those temples, one of those shrines to Apollo or Aphrodite or whatever. You are a temple, a sanctuary of God. And even the way he he presents this in the Greek, the, the, the language that he wrote or had it written in, emphasizes the fact that that of the, the character of the sanctuary, the character of God. You're not just one of those gods. You are of God, the God, the living God, not these gods of stone and, and, and fable and all this kind of stuff. You are the God. You are of the God, the dwelling place of God who made all these things. And even Paul's message in Athens in Acts 17 would be helpful to consider. But he says, you are, and the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of God, dwells in you. There are different names that Paul uses, and other Bible writers use, to describe the Spirit of God. And like the Holy Spirit, of course, obviously, but also the Eternal Spirit, Hebrews 9, verse 14. The Spirit of glory and of God, First Peter 4, 14. There is an aspect where we recognize the Spirit of God, the non-physical aspect of God's presence is dwelling in us. And that's not just a an it. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, we shouldn't just say, you know, it indwells us. No, it's he. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're all persons. And we shouldn't say, well, it, uh, just as much as we shouldn't say, uh, you know, uh, about a baby, a baby's boy or girl, we, can't, we shouldn't use the word it unless we don't know. Uh, but even so, we should, the little babe, the little, oh, this is a babe in the womb. Uh, but we talk about the Holy Spirit as he dwells in you. And that wonderful reality, okay, so in some regards, it's okay to say Jesus lives in your heart. 
in other regards, could, could fine-tune that understanding a little bit. It's the spirit of Christ who dwells in us. We can see this, for example, in like Galatians 4 and verse 6. We'll read this in a little bit in our reading through. Because your sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's the spirit of his son. Or another passage, you'll have to write it down and look at it. Romans 8, first 10 verses really, or 12 verses, uh, are really referencing this work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, giving life to us and and individually, but also corporately. And he kind of mixes those different ideas of of a corporate identity of the Spirit of God's dwelling place and the individual identity. Romans 8, you can consider at another time. But we see this wonderful emphasis on the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Now, if you were to consider, and I don't know how athletic, uh, well, how athletic we are, but how much we're given to watching athletics or or observing or going to games. You know, if if you had an event, an athletic event, where you had different groups coming together and they all assumed that their sport was going to be the game. You had the basketball play- players come and they're expecting a basketball game. And you had the football people come and the soccer, or did I just say, did I was I redundant? I don't know. Uh, and then you have the hockey people and you have the, the curlers and then you have the ping pong and then you have this new sport, I don't even know what it is. And then you have ping pong where all these different things, and then you had all these gymnast people and all the people are coming expecting their sport. Well, that would be chaos or the Olympics, I don't know. But, but you would have... You'd have a, a competing agenda. You'd have different ideas. And you'd say, well, why isn't my sport doing this? And I came for this. And all this kind of animosity would be built because of their expectations, because they wanted what they wanted. They wanted their sport going on. Paul says, that's not what the church is. We're not about that sport or that sport and trying to compete. Or if you don't mind, that teacher or that teacher or that situation or that ideology. We're about Christ. Our central focus is on him and celebrating the gospel, celebrating the truth of him, celebrating the transforming grace of God, celebrating not to reduce the theology or the doctrine that we are unified on, but saying that is what is the basis for us. Some people say doctrine divides. Well, it does, but also unites. And when we have a clear uh, presentation of the truth based on God's word, coming from God's word, explained by God's word, not saying, oh, you know, this verse says this, so then we build a whole theological system over here. That's not honoring to the Lord. We come and recognizing we are not just our own people. We're not just coming for our own gratification or agenda. We're coming to worship Christ. We're coming as the dwelling place of the Spirit. The Spirit brings that unity. The Spirit brings that unified attention upon Jesus. One of the things about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is sometimes referred to as the shyness of the Spirit. You think, what's the Spirit shy about? Glory. He wants the glory to be directed toward Jesus the Son. Always directing people's attention, not to himself. He's not a showy uh, a God who wants to you know, worship the Spirit. No, we worship in the Spirit. We worship the Father through Jesus the Son. And we'll get to it in chapter 15 about how Christ, how God the Father has subjected all things to Christ all the glory should go to him, Philippians 2 also, saying, uh, you know, all, 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 every knee will bow and so forth and glorify Christ. But in that future day, when everything is accomplished, all, everything's wrapped up, Christ will take his, what's been subjected to him, and subject it back to God the Father, so that God may be all in all. In other words, the, the Holy Spirit does not want the glory placed upon himself. And so we get into chapters 12 and 14, talking about the spiritual gifts. It's not supposed to be a, 
uh, a grand, grandiose or um, whole thing about celebrating the Spirit. It's the Spirit directing for unity in the church, direction toward Christ, celebrating him. And he says, don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you realize? Don't you appreciate the fact you are the sanctuary of God? The Spirit of God dwells in you. Ephesians chapter 2 also fills out this idea, recognizing that this this church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And it says that Christ Jesus is that cornerstone. It goes on, that's chapter 2, Ephesians 2 and verse 20. Verses 21 and 22 says, In whom the whole building in Christ, in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into dwelling of God in the Spirit. We recognize that God is coming right down into our midst, and that ought to cause us great joy because God has come to us, but also, whoa, God, you're coming. It's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever had, I think back not with trepidation, but I think back to living in the dorms in college and, and you'd have room inspections every week or something. Well, did I put the socks away or you know wash the windows or all the, the room inspection? And, and if it happened ever on a surprise notice, oh no, I forgot to do this. When Christ is present in his congregation, it ought to instill a fear and trepidation, but also a delight drawing near to him because he's not coming to condemn. He is coming to smile on his people. He is coming to rejoice and coming to see the sweetness of the love of the brothers. In fact, he said, John 13, 35, all men will know you're my disciples if you have study Bible. No, uh, if you don't mind, if you have love for one another. Do you have love? Can you show that? Can you just put away your petty grievances, focus on Christ? And it's not just an only thing, just just focus on Christ. Focus on Christ in his fullness and the beauty of him as is portrayed in Scripture and all the doctrines that pertain to him, all the things that flow out of that reality. Don't you know? That's what you are. That's who you are. In a lost and dying generation, especially in Corinth, we're going to get to some of those things. You know, when we think of the Corinthian church, we think, oh, what a messed up church and what a messed up city, what horrible situation. That's why Paul says, don't you know, you're not like those temples over there. You're not like those shrines, these little idols and and places of worship, little small little places. You are the dwelling of God in the spirit and the spirit of God dwells in you. Now he gives a a warning and it's not even a threat. It's not change your ways. It's it's a warning. And insofar as we have considered those who build, everybody builds, it's not a matter of, well, if I build the church. No, it's how do you build? If you're part of this congregation, even as an unbeliever, what are you doing in this in this fellowship? What are you doing? Uh, and as an unbeliever, there's certain limitations, obviously. But as believers, we make the, the benefit we make, not coming to be served, but to serve as our Lord Christ and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gave that description back about the farmers, right? The, we're servants. We One person uh, planted, the other watered, and God causes the growth. Or the different workers that provide different aspects, different contributions or aspects to the church, to the building. But then there's these other people in verse 17 that the question is, and different people have answered it various ways, are these people in verse 17, are they Christian? Are they saved? These people who destroy the sanctuary of God? How can that be? The one who destroys the sanctuary of God, God will destroy him. Well, we saw earlier, was it verse 15? If any man's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet so as through fire, there's going to be there's going to be a sense of loss in that. You'll be saved. But here, we don't really have that guarantee. Those who destroy the church, those who destroy the sanctuary of God, 
who actively not just you know provide the the tree and trees the wood and the hay and the stubble but are working to destroy undermine uh, controvert to just totally upset the church through various means that we'll consider in a moment that kind of person God's going to destroy that person. And it's the same word, and you see it here, uh, destroy. The, the action toward the church is the same action God takes toward that person. If any man destroys the sanctuary of God, God will destroy him. That kind of idea of, of a law of retribution in kind, it's called the lex talionis, uh, the law of retaliation or, or um, just uh, consequences for any particular action. If you're going to uh, destroy, then you'll be destroyed. If you kill, like in Genesis 9, the one who kills man, well, he's going to be killed himself. Or uh, other other examples of it, we could consider this law of retribution. One example, you can trace it in your scriptures. Remember Moses and Aaron? Again, regarding this idea, and he's, Paul emphasizes, emphasizes it here in verse 17, the sanctuary of God is holy. Do you remember how when Moses first met, or at least in the text, uh, the narrative of, of Exodus, when he first met the Lord, there was this burning bush. And the message came, take off your sandals for the place, the ground on which you're standing is holy. It is set apart. This is where God himself is. And so be careful. The, the holiness of God, the presence of God ought to change the way that we approach our situation. There was a situation in in Numbers, really cele- celebrated, recorded anyway, not celebrated because it was horrible, when Moses and Aaron did not honor the Lord. In fact, it says, this is Numbers 20 and verse 12, because you did not believe me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Whoa, I mean, that's law of retribution. That is in kind. These people who did not, Moses and Aaron, who did not treat God as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, you're not going to lead my people in to the promised land. And we can see that traced out later in that chapter, Numbers 20, Aaron died. And he was gathered because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. We see uh, Moses, similar thing, Numbers 27, and then again in Deuteronomy 32, where Moses dies. Thankfully, he gets to see a view of the promised land, but he's not able to enter it because, again, you, Moses, rebelled against my command to treat me as holy before their eyes at the water. And again, Deuteronomy 30 and verse 51, or 32, verse 51. So this idea of destroying the sanctuary of God, actively undermining this and undermining the holiness of God in that regard and undermining the, the testimony of the church in that area. Oh, you're just acting like the, the, the temple. I was going to say the church, but the temple of Aphrodite. All the wickedness goes on there. Or you're no different than any other person in Corinth, you Christian people. I see you're just as divisive and hateful and, and ruinous and proud and arrogant and all this as everybody else. Christ makes no difference. You're just another mystery religion or something. You, you have your own thing, but that makes no difference in your life. Go worship whatever you want, but we're not going to worship you because your thing is fake. It's a big deal. Titus 2 is very much emphasizing that, that we would not blaspheme or give cause for people to blaspheme our God, that we would adorn, make beautiful the doctrine of God in every respect. Paul says here, and he doesn't really describe it, though you can kind of read between the lines about this, if any person is destroying the sanctuary of God, Well, how do we do that? We'll get to that idea in just a moment. But he says, whatever action they're taking against the church, that's the action God is going to take. And it, God will judge in that last day. He is the one who is just and the judge of all the earth. He will certainly do what is right. What is interesting about this, and you'll have to trace this out again. I've given you a lot of homework. You're able to do it. But 
do you remember somebody who was kind of active in destroying the church? Somebody who's, who even went to the ends of the earth, as it were, to try to persecute, you know, chasing God and trying to bring it down, trying to oppose it because he was even offering his devotion to God. This is God I'm, I'm worshiping. Somebody destroying the church. Somebody ravaging the church is the, is the text there. Persecution. Um, there is mistreatment, uh, dragging off men and women, delivering them into prison. Kind of sounds like, ooh, the Apostle Paul, right? The guy who's writing this letter. If any man destroys the church, God will destroy that person. And Paul never got over the fact, in his earthly ministry anyway, never got over the fact that he persecuted the church of God. Never. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll see it, that he was the one, he says, I'm the least of all the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. 1 Timothy 1, at the end of his life, almost at the end, he says, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor against Christ and his church. And he that just marred him. And so he recognized it's God's grace. God's grace changed me from the one who was destroying the sanctuary of God, the one who was physically taking people away, and God had mercy on that. But those who who do not repent, it's kind of like the unpardonable sin, if you don't mind. And again, there's so many things that we could trace down. Matthew 12 talks about that, that those who deny the power of the Holy Spirit, well, there's no salvation for them. They've cut off the only means they have toward life, and they say, well, I'm I'm not going to do that. Naaman, um, 1 Kings Five is Naaman, the Syrian, the general that had leprosy, and he went and, and had to just wash in the river, and you'll be you'll be clean. I'm not going to do that. Just do it. Paul is the one who surrendered himself to God. Of course, God confronted him. The Lord Jesus confronted him, changed the whole direction of his life, no longer destroying the church, now building up and even offering himself uh, to, for the benefit of the church. Sanctuary of God, and this is everybody, the whole church. The sanctuary of God is holy, and that is what you are. God himself is the one who will judge in that day. But in the meanwhile, we need to be careful not just to build up, but not to destroy. And we think, well, <clears throat> how, how is, it that, is it possible to destroy the church? Well, it's not merely as simple as don't use wood, hay, and stubble in your building, because these are people who are, are tearing it down actively. Paul doesn't really fill out the idea. Again, it's, it's we have to bring in what he's already said and what he's going to say in the rest of his book. But things like, boastful arrogance, destroying the church, because what are you all full of yourself for? An eagerness to appraise others, not praise others, but to judge them, to appraise them, to pass judgment on their opinions, pass judgment. What are you, what are you doing? How are you doing this? Why do you say this? And to a certain degree, we want to help one another, spur one another on toward love and deeds, but in a condemnatory sense. We'll get to this idea again in chapter 10, I guess it would be, or well, chapter 8 also, but of First Corinthians, in terms of uh, um, what we would call Christian liberty. But we, we use our, our opinions to, to beat up others, and that's not what God wants to happen. Or a competitive partisanship, a party spirit, uh, jealousies, uh, quarrels that might go in here. And again, this is God's dwelling place, and you're acting like pagans over here. You're acting like unregenerate people. You're, you're acting like babes. Remember chapter uh, 3 and verse 2 and verse 1. As to infants in Christ, I had to speak to you. But here, I don't think these people are, are believers. These, these are not acting, you know, bearing fruit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. This is kind of like what we'd read about in Hebrews, uh, but, well, Hebrews, but especially when Christ says, there is going to be a separation of wheat and tares. This is Matthew 13. Let, let them both grow together 
But there is going to be a time when those are separated. The wheat will be gathered in, but the tares will be destroyed. The, the weeds will be destroyed. Other examples we could see, Romans 12, though, teaches us that we need to leave room for the wrath of God. There is, there is a certain measure, measure of protection that we need to have for our congregation, for the church, clarity of doctrine, uh, Christian testimony, um, you know, biblical conduct, that kind of thing. But ultimately, we can fool each other. But you can't fool God. I mean, everybody looks here. Yeah, I, I, I would love to say everybody here is a Christian, loving the Lord, walking holy, righteously before God. But I know there's there's issues that's going on, and I'm not calling anybody. I'm not. If you'd please stand and let us hear you confess all your sins. That's not the point. The point is, in this congregation, there are wheat and there are tares, and we're going to try to spur one another on toward Christ. But God's going to have to sort it all out, all out in that end time. If any man destroys the sanctuary of God. God will destroy him. You are that sanctuary, that dwelling place of God. But God is a righteous God. He's a jealous God. In fact, many times uh, you, you can find the, the combination of God's holiness and his jealousy. And that he is the one who guards his holiness and his holy people very carefully. Thankfully, just like the Apostle Paul, there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness with God. That he may be feared, that he could be worshipped and honored, but you have to turn away from your selfishness, your pride, your being all full of yourself, and run to Christ and find him as that saving, a wonderful, saving God. Last word, Hebrews chapter 10 uh, says, uh, talking about the, the willful sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, and there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. This is Hebrews 12, 10 and verse 26. Jumping down to verse 31 says, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God the living God, the holy God, the true God. There's I mean, these other false gods. There's nothing to them. But there is something with God. Make sure that you are right with him. How do we come right with him? Run to the Son. Trust the Son. Turn away from sin. Find your salvation in Christ alone, his death, barren resurrection, not to destroy the church, not to use the church to serve your interest, but to serve and even give your life for the advancement of Christ's body on earth, for the glory of God, for the enduring rewards that come that will be, again, returned to the Lord himself because he is worthy. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your truth, your wonderful, redeeming grace that is upon our lives. We're grateful that even for the testimony of the Apostle Paul, former persecutor, violent aggressor against your church, but one who you used so wonderfully to build up the church. And so we pray that each person here would be in Christ and turning away from sin and foolishness, but then seeking to build up the church. Through your power, it's nothing in ourselves that we can't do this, but your power, working in, in ways that are, are selfless and humble, as our Lord Jesus humbled himself in so many different ways, even to, the, to death on the cross. Please help us to lay down our lives for one another, that we would seek your, your perspective on all things, that we would relish and, and rest in your sovereignty, your purpose. We pray that we'd be given wholly to your name, especially as people outside, outsiders are watching, and they want to see what's the difference. What difference does Christ make? We pray that they would see and see the reason for hope within us, reason for forgiveness, a confidence that we have in Christ, and to say, yeah, that's what I need. That's what I want, and that they would turn to Christ. We pray that you'd save and sanctify for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.